Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of the Adult Reconstruction Lecture Series. This lecture will focus on complications surrounding total hip arthroplasty. This is probably the most important lecture on total hip arthroplasty with regard to the in-training examinations and board examinations as it is a favorite topic among question writers. We will discuss periprosthetic fractures, post-operative neuropalsy, limb length discrepancy, iliopsoas impingement, and heterotopic ossification. Let's begin the lecture by talking about periprosthetic fractures. Periprosthetic fractures can be divided into two camps, perioperative fractures and late fractures. Intraoperative or perioperative fractures are fractures that occur during insertion of the implants. The risk of obtaining an intraoperative fracture is highest with cementless implants. Intraoperative femur fracture occurs in approximately 0.1 to 5% of the time during primary total hip arthroplasty, and the risk of fracture increases significantly during revision total hip arthroplasty to a rate of somewhere between 3 and 21%. Cemented implants have a much lower risk of intraoperative fracture, which makes sense because they are not relying on press fit fixation. Risk factors for intraoperative femur fracture include, as stated, cementless implants, females, osteoporosis, revision surgery, impaction bone grafting, and technical errors. Wedge taper cementless stems are associated with proximal fractures, while cylindrical, fully porous coated stems tend to cause distal fractures. If, during stem insertion, there is a noticeable change in resistance, say from difficult to suddenly easily entering the canal, or you notice a change in the tone during impaction, you should be concerned for a possible intraoperative fracture. If you cannot fully visualize the distal extent of the fracture, intraoperative imaging needs to be obtained to fully appreciate the fracture pattern. Longitudinal calcar splits can be treated with stem removal, cerclage cabling, and reinsertion. If the greater trochanter has fractured off, it will require fixation with a claw plate. If the fracture occurs more distally, a long stem prosthesis must be used that can bypass the distalmost extent of the fracture by two cortical diameters. Intraoperative acetabular fractures are much less common and typically occur during the final implant impaction. The greatest contributing risk factor is under-reaming of the cup by 2 millimeters or more. Other risk factors include revision surgery, osteoporosis, dysplastic anatomy, and previous radiation to the area. If a fracture line is noticed, the first step is to determine the stability of the implant. If the acetabular component is stable, no additional fixation is required. Some surgeons may treat the patient with protected weight bearing for 8 to 12 weeks following surgery. If the fracture has any significant displacement, it may require reduction in plate fixation. Now let's talk about every question writer's favorite topic, post-operative periprosthetic femur fractures. These occur in less than 3% of all primary cementless total hip arthroplasty procedures. They can be classified into two broad categories, early post-operative fractures and late post-operative fractures. Early postoperative fractures tend to occur in cementless implants. Late postoperative fractures tend to occur in cemented implants. We classify periprosthetic fractures according to the Vancouver classification. This classification system helps to guide the treatment algorithm. Types AG fractures are fractures involving the greater trochanter. Types AL fractures are fractures involving the lesser trochanter. If non-displaced, these fractures can be treated non-operatively with protected weight bearing. If the greater trochanter is displaced, it may require open reduction internal fixation. A B1 fracture indicates a fracture at or around the femoral stem that remains well fixed and stable. These fractures do not require revision of the implant 
Instead, they may be treated with open reduction internal fixation, generally with a cable plate and cerclage wires and screws. A B2 fracture occurs around the area of the stem or just below it in a patient with good bone stock. However, the stem becomes loose. This requires revision of the femoral component to a long stem, fully porous coated implant that is capable of bypassing the fracture by two cortical diameters. A B3 fracture occurs around the stem or just distal to it and has a loose femoral component and occurs in a patient with poor bone stock. These are challenging fractures that require revision of the femoral stem to a long stem prosthesis and allograft supplementation. Some surgeons prefer to use an allograft prosthetic composite, while others will use a proximal femoral replacement. Type C fracture occurs distal to the prosthesis and can be treated with open reduction internal fixation with a plate. Take some time to fully understand the Vancouver classification system and the treatment algorithm as you will absolutely see it on exams. Let's switch gears now and talk about hip dislocation. We touched on this briefly during our primary total hip arthroplasty lecture. Hip dislocations occur in 1-2% to of primary total hip arthroplasty and upwards of 5-7% to of revision total hips. The highest risk demographic for hip dislocation are patients over the age of 80 years old that undergo total hip arthroplasty for revision of a failed open reduction internal fixation of a femoral neck fracture. Contributing factors to this are thought to be muscular weakness, decreased cognitive ability, and loss of coordination. Approximately 70% of all hip dislocations occur within the first month of surgery. They almost universally occur posteriorly at 75-90% to 90% of all dislocations. Patient-specific risk factors for hip dislocation include revision total hip arthroplasty, the elderly, female sex, obesity and alcoholism, neuromuscular disorders, and decreased cognitive capacity. Surgical risk factors are thought to include the posterolateral approach. However, with meticulous capsular repair and external rotator reconstruction, the dislocation rate is similar to that experienced with the anterior surgical approach. Malpositioning of the components can also place the patient at risk for a dislocation event. Remember that the ideal position is 40 degrees of abduction and 15 degrees of antiversion. Other risk factors within the surgeon's control that may increase the risk of dislocation is a failure to recreate the femoral offset leading to decreased soft tissue tensioning, using a smaller femoral head component, and having a small head-to-neck ratio. The mechanism of dislocation can be predicted based upon the direction of dislocation. Posterior dislocations tend to occur with the patient's hip in a flexed, internally rotated, and adducted position, while anterior dislocations tend to occur with the patient's hip in an extended and externally rotated position. Patients with posterior hip dislocations will present with the leg in internal rotation and adduction. It will be shortened in comparison to the contralateral side and painful to move. Patients with anterior dislocations tend to hold the leg in external rotation and abduction. Approximately two-thirds of all patients with prosthetic hip dislocations can be treated with closed reduction in the emergency room with light sedation. The closed reduction maneuver involves recreating the mechanism of dislocation. For posterior hip dislocation, this involves flexion, internal rotation, adduction, and distraction. For anterior dislocations, this involves extension, external rotation, and distraction. Following reduction, the patient's hip needs to be taken through their normal range of motion to determine the stability. The patient should also be re-educated to follow their hip precautions. Placing the patient in a knee immobilizer is also helpful to keep them out of the position of dislocation. If the patient sustains multiple hip dislocations, they may require revision surgery. If there is an obvious malalignment of the components, they need to be revised. 
Increasing the head side and increasing the offset can help to stabilize the hip. If there is decreased soft tissue tension that cannot be corrected by component revision, the patient may require a trochanteric advancement. If the soft tissues are compromised beyond repair, the patient may require a constrained polyethylene liner. These liners transmit forces directly to the bone prosthetic interface of the acetabular component and may lead to mechanical loosening over time and are therefore reserved for elderly, low-demand patients, those with cognitive dysfunction that are not capable of complying with hip precautions, and those with complete soft tissue deficiency. Let's move now from hip dislocations to talking about some of the nerve palsies associated with total hip arthroplasty. Another frequent complication of total hip arthroplasty is sciatic nerve palsy. This occurs in less than 3% of primary total hips, and 80% of the time the perineal division is affected, leading to a foot drop. It is felt that the most common cause for a sciatic nerve palsy is compression, typically from misplaced retractors or a hematoma. The sciatic nerve is closest to the acetabulum at the level of the ischium. The perineal division lies closer to the acetabulum than the tibial division, placing it at increased risk. Risk factors for postoperative sciatic nerve palsy include being female, post-traumatic arthritis, revision surgery, and limb lengthening. Developmental dysplasia of the hip is also a risk factor, likely secondary to limb lengthening during the procedure. If the limb is lengthened greater than 3.5 centimeters, there is an increased risk for the development of sciatic nerve palsy. Patients typically present with numbness and weakness located within the perineal nerve division. This may develop suddenly after they have been sitting in a chair in the acute postoperative period. Remember that with flexion of the hip, the sciatic nerve is tensioned, which may lead to the palsy. If a sciatic nerve palsy is detected, the patient should be placed in bed with the hip extended and knee flexed to decrease the tension across the nerve. If a postoperative hematoma is suspected, a CT scan or an ultrasound should be ordered to evaluate. EMG analysis can be utilized to detect the level of injury. Patients with a foot drop should be treated with an ankle foot orthosis and taught exercises to prevent the equinus contractures from developing. Only 35-40% to 40 of patients that have a complete nerve palsy will recover full strength. Let's talk now for a second about limb length discrepancies. These are the most common cause of lawsuits following hip arthroplasty. Many patients complain of limb length Many patients will complain of a limb length discrepancy, however, on exam they are nearly symmetric. This is typically caused by weakness of the abductor muscular complex, leading to a perceived limb length difference when walking. This patient can be reassured that this typically resolves in 3-6 to six months. If a true limb length discrepancy does exist, most times it can be adequately treated with a shoe lift. Templating is of utmost importance in preventing this complication from occurring. Anterior groin pain following total hip arthroplasty can be caused by iliopsoas impingement. Risk factors for this include component malposition with anterior overhang of the acetabular component. An ultrasound-guided injection containing lidocaine and corticosteroid can be both diagnostic and therapeutic. If on imaging evaluation the patient has adequately positioned acetabular components and continues to have iliopsoas pain, they may undergo an iliopsoas release. This can be done arthroscopically. If, however, the acetabular component is malpositioned with excessive anterior overhang, it should be revised. Heterotopic ossification is also a frequent complication following total hip arthroplasty. It results in decreased function with a severe loss of motion. The ossified mass must be given time to mature prior to resection, which takes approximately six months. 
indomethacin in the perioperative period and radiation therapy have been found to decrease the rate of heterotopic ossification formation. All right, that concludes our talk on total hip arthroplasty complications. This is obviously a highly testable subject, so I recommend re-reviewing this lecture and spending some extra time on it to fully understand all the concepts. As always, please check back for any additions or modifications to the lecture. Next up, we will be moving on to lectures pertaining to total knee arthroplasty. Thanks for listening.